Alrighty, Ask Philip Podcast episode, principal episode, and we're going to be talking about pleasing personality. So pleasing personality, this is, this is a real story I have on my calendar every day. I think it's like a 5.30 reminder or 6, or 6 o'clock reminder, a.m., have a pleasing personality. That's how important this principle is just in life, right? And, and what is a pleasing personality? It's a personality where you are looking to build people up versus breaking people down, right? And for me specifically, you know, because I'm, I'm naturally a confrontational person. Like, I, you know, people debate me and, and or argue and, you know, we'll argue about stuff and I like it. You know, some people see conflict as negative and I'm like, no, the conflict is neutral, right? It, it depends. Like if you, if you are disrespectful to me, then, then, then the conflict can be negative. But I mean, if we're having a debate, like I'm actually enjoying it. And my, some people might think, oh man, this is negative. No, I like conflict. And so for me, pleasing personality also reminds me of, Philip, you don't have to debate about everything, right? You, 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 you want to create harmony because not everybody sees conflict the way you see conflict. So that's pleasing personality description in my opinion. And let me give you a story because my, my youngest, who's five now, he, he is his mother and his, and his pawpaw. He is amazing at pleasing personality. You know, I give like a couple of examples. One day I said something to him that he didn't, he didn't particularly like. And he said, Daddy, I don't care about you. And, I, but, and right before I got ready to get, get with him, he said, but I still love you, though. Right? He is the master. And he's been that way. He's been talking since he's been walking at one. But he's the master at just evading you know, evading conflict and getting you back on his side. He gets it every time he gets gets out the car. He picks flowers for his mom and gives it gives it to her. He just is a super happy kid. And here's another example of how he also knows how to use it. So he's just naturally a pleasing personality, but he also knows how to use it, which means he's going to be an excellent salesperson. But you know, he said, "Daddy, I want to write Mama a note." I said, "All right, what do you want to say?" Because I got to spell it for him because he can write, but he can't spell. He's like, "I want to say." You're the best mama ever. Can you make me some cookies? Right? <laughs> and and he wrote the note and of course you know we were eating cookies that night. But the beauty of a person pleasing personality is it's not that, you know, in this example it's not that we're not we don't know what he's doing. We know what he's doing, but when you have a pleasing personality, you get a lot of what you want cuz you know, it's really hard to to say no to somebody who's just such a such a pleasing personality. The the best wealth managers, the best physicians, the best real estate agents, the best CEOs, the best people who you know in business are not the smartest. As a matter of fact, the the older I get, you know, you, at 22, you think, oh, man, these people that are making all this money, they're super smart. And as you get higher and higher, you realize they're really not that smart. As a matter of fact, you know, some of them are like sub have subpar intelligence, you know, but what but what they lack in intelligence, they make up for in like personality. Like they are some of the most attractive, and I'm not talking about physically. I mean like emotionally. Like they attract people because they are just such good people, warm people. They make you feel better about yourself being around them, right? And that is their their superpower. And they get people who are smarter than them to work for them, right? You know, because because again, the pleasing personality allows them to say, "Oh, you smart people, I'm going to love on you," and and what what it allows them to do is coordinate and organize groups of people to work towards a common goal, 
that's chosen by them, <laughs> you, you know, which, which that's the most powerful form of leverage, right? Forget about financial leverage. The most powerful form of leverage is the ability to organize human beings to work towards a common goal that you're directing. And that's what a pleasing personality, you know, also do. I mean, and, and for most of us, you know, most people say, well, it's hard for me to do it. And I'm like, it's really not because, you know, a, a lot of us do it in the beginning of a relationship, especially, to, I mean, think about you convincing somebody to marry you. Right. In that beginning phase, you know, how much of a pleasing personality you have in the beginning, right? When you locked in on a goal and you want that person and you have the thousands of years of human instinct in you for the need to create another human being and you find a way to harness that pleasing personality power in the beginning to convince somebody to spend the rest of their, you know, life with you, which is, which is a pretty big, you know, a pretty big deal. And so, you know, it's easy to do it in the beginning. Or if you make that sale, right, you want that new client, you're nice to them in the beginning. It's easy. Then once you get the business, maintaining it becomes hard. Or if you're recruiting some top recruit, somebody who you want to work for your firm, you lay out the red carpet to get them there. So everybody has seen themselves do it in the beginning of a relationship. Only the masters continue to work at it when they get comfortable in their relationships, right? Hence, why it's on my calendar in the morning and why I look at it, I'm like, I got to continue to have a pleasing personality for the new people, but more so, that's the easy part, for the people that I have in my life on an ongoing basis, right? That's that's the, that's the struggle, and that's what separates, you know, the, the, the high achievers from the everybody who's just average or, or low achievement. So check, you know, and, and by the way, for you, for you who don't know, these principles that I'm talking about are in... Uh, Napoleon Hill's Laws of Success, you know, one one of my favorite books to read. I'm just applying it to, you know, my eyes in the 21st century. Let's move to the next topics. My thoughts on opportunities in the market. And now I'm going to try to rotate this one in, you know, monthly because I think it's probably not going to change much, but month to month. But I think it's important because not everybody, not everybody listens to each episode and I have a lot of new people in new episodes, and so I think it'll be helpful. But the opportunities I see, in, and specifically in public markets, right, and, and, and what's the time frame? I'm talking about over the next, you know, five to, to eight years is, is and, and, and these are not, as my disclosure says, not recommendations, not, not I don't know your plan, I don't, I don't advise you, so... It's not advice, but it's Bitcoin and precious metals are like huge opportunities. And, and that, that I see opportunities in owning the physical asset classes, but also looking at companies that are building around those asset uh, classes, right? And why is that, right? Well, if, if you think about the drivers of investment returns, right, you have the micro drivers, which are, you know, management how are how are they doing relative to other people in the industry? You have consumer demand for their products, right? Those are kind of micro things that impact investments, and this and, and and this might be specifically stocks. But then you have the macro, right? Which is like these are what causes the big moves. So what is what's happening with global growth, and what's happening with global inflation, right? And you could think of it like, you know, I look at it as a. An example of micro versus versus macro. It could be if if you run and you work real hard, and in a normal environment, you could run whatever you can run. You can run six miles in an hour, or ten miles in an hour. I'm just making up some numbers, right? Let's let's go with ten miles in an hour, right? 
in normal situations. That's kind of baseline. But if you have the you know wind going against you, right? So if it's a really windy day, no matter how fast you are, you're going to run slower, right? Uh, if you're in a race, you may still win because you're going to run faster than everybody else if that's normal. But it's going to affect your run. Or if the, if the wind is going with you, right? That's gonna that's gonna help you, right? So those are that's what the big picture getting on the side of the of, of the big picture macro trends do when you're looking at investing, right? Because that's the, the the biggest driver is global growth and global inflation, right? And so I like to look at that even before I go to the micro because if you get the the macro, the big picture right, it you know, it gives you a margin of safety if you mess up some things on a micro because the winds are at your back, right? And it also helps you know what not to focus on because if it's some things, some asset classes that don't fit it within the macro, you can ignore them and you can spend more time on stuff that does fit within the macro and it increases your your batting average. So let's go on the macro. And the macro is like relatively easier to predict than the micro because you have a lot of historical context of how things happen the same way over and over again. So let me paint you a picture of what I mean because I'm going nerd on you. Right now, what we know for a fact is there's a lot of global debt, like a lot of global debt relative to global debt in history all over the world. Like that's not an opinion. That is a fact that you can that you can look up. And so what does that mean? Let me not explain it in like global terms where we're looking at countries. Let's explain it just like a regular person, right? So let's say a person starts off and they say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to, buy a house or something so they they buy a house right the banks they put down five ten percent banks will give them money they buy a house and they have an increase in lifestyle because they get a home versus living in an apartment then they say i want a nicer car so bank gives them money for a car and then they want to furnish cars and take trips and they don't they don't yet have the money to do it because they're not in their peak earning they're starting out in life but they do those things and and that debt is taking a bigger chunk of their discretionary income and they're locked into it. Where there's a point where their debt is so big and they're so stressed that even if a credit card company was offering them more debt, they would just stop taking it on because they know they can't pay it back, right? Just naturally, like some people think, oh, people are irresponsible. They're going to keep taking on debt. Now, most people get to a point to where you know, and some is different than the other, where they're like, man, this is just too much debt. I can't take anymore. Like, yeah, even, even if somebody would give me 30 grand, like, what am I going to do with it? I can't take on too much debt. And so their their lifestyle in the beginning exponentially increases their, their you know, their, the comfort of lifestyle. But then at a certain point, it just kind of flatlines, right? And even to a certain extent goes down because of the the weight of all that debt on them emotionally and everything. And so, and because the, the debt payments have become such a big part of their uh, discretionary income. So that's the world today, right? Forget about Who's in charge? Who's the president? People are saying, oh, this president, you know, gave us a terrible economy. This, No, this president, no, the president can't do anything because there's so much global debt. Like a president can't wave a magic wand and erase the debt. The reason why things are growing slow (laughs) is because there's so much debt in the system. And so there's only a couple of ways in the personal example to get rid of debt. They could significantly make more money, which at a point is tough, right? And so just assume right now where we are is there's only productivity growth of human beings 
can only go so much. And we're at the peak of productivity growth, right? Because we've gone through a productivity boom over the last 20, 30 years. So we're at that peak. So that's, that's, that option is off the table. Option two, you can file bankruptcy, right? That means you say, I'm just not going to pay the debts back. And governments are not going to do that, specifically in America, which, you know, which has a lot of debt in a big way on the global economy. Because if they were to say, I'm not going to pay the debts, well, you got to think, all right, who is that going to impact, right? Who owns all the debt? It's pension plans, right? It's insurance companies, right? Who's the largest demographic in America that votes? Baby boomers. So you'd let me know what politician in the world is going to like default on their pensions, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, why their retirement and when they're going to retire. They're, they're not going to do that. It's not happening because people, once you understand incentives, right? So a lot of, a lot of investing is understanding human behavior, right? Because human behavior in a certain situation, we're all going to do the same thing, right? We, we may say, oh, I'm not, I'm not violent. Well, let somebody try to kill my kids. You know, I get violent real quick, right? Or somebody say, all these people, these people that live over here in these poor economic conditions, they're so violent. They're so bad. Okay, well, you put yourself in a position where people are dying at a young age. You pretty much guarantee you're not going to live to 18, right? The system is against you. You're going to value short-term survival over over long-term, which if you're in a safe environment, you could think long-term because you know that your actions, you, you can see the the payoff of thinking long-term, right? So we all act the same way for the most part in similar situations. Uh, and, and sure, there's outliers, but for the most part, as a at a macro level, humans act the same way in the same circumstances. So a politician wants to be reelected. They're not going to bankrupt the system, right? And, and, you can look at, and you can look at history, right? Because I like to study history. And so I literally bought a book called Managing Debt Crisis is just and it goes over the history of how countries over years, and you know, it goes back at least 100 years, but it looks at all different types of economies and how they manage debt crises over time. So different political systems, different countries, different languages, and they all manage their debt crisis the same way, which is option number three, right? So they weren't, you get to a point to where you can't make any more money. They're not going to file, you know, bankruptcy. So printing money, right? Printing money is what, all of them do, right? And what is printing money? is creating money out of thin air. And, and so, and if you understand money, money is only valuable if it's scarce. When it no longer becomes scarce, it becomes worth less, right? And so what politicians say is, okay, we're going to pay back the money we owe. And so if we owe $20 trillion, we're just going to, over time, slowly create $20 trillion or whatever the gap is that we can't pay with with tax receipts to pay that back, right? They, they did it in the 70s. We were super indebted before the 70s. They printed, a, they, they came off the gold standard, inflated a bunch of money, and at the end of the 70s, our debt was low again, right? And so, um, again, there's like lots of examples over time of different countries, different time periods doing this. And the reason why that is the preferred method for governments is most people don't understand inflation, right? I think some people, because I was doing this, I'm a finance major, and I have been in this industry since I graduated. And so it took me a good 10 years to fully understand what the heck inflation, like you understand the concept. Yeah. Cost of goods going up, but you don't really understand, like understand it. It's like another language, right? You may say, I understand English, you know, at five, my five-year-old understand English, but does he really understand English? You know, he understands like a five-year-old, right? He knows how to say words, but he doesn't fully understand 
some words. And I feel like that's inflation. And because that's how inflation works, governments, they can do it because it it's just a, it, it's the, the reason why you see the wealth gap, right? And I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to sit for, sit on this for a second. So what does printing money do, right? It, it basically steals money from us in the future because the the cost of it's going to force the cost of goods to go up. If your money is worth less, it's going to take more of that money in the future to buy the same same level of goods. And so, which if you think about all the technology that we've had, technology is what we call deflationary, meaning technology makes the cost of things go down, right? Because we become more efficient. When you become more efficient, it brings the cost down. It's how Walmart and Costco and Amazon have such low prices. They they create a new way to do things and it drives the cost down along with competition. And so so you got to wonder, man, we just got through with all of this, you know, crazy technology boom that we had in the last 20, 30 years. But but it's more expensive to live than it was 20 years ago. Well, why is that? Inflation. Right? Inflation. They printed money which disproportionately affected people who don't own assets. But if you own assets, if you're able to buy a house and invest in stocks, well, you came up, right? Because houses are worth more, which is a big chunk of the people who make less money's income, right? Those lowering of rates, right? The, the when they printed money, they also lowered interest rates to an artificially level, low level. That affects insurance prices because insurance make money on the spread between the time you need the claim and when you give them the money. If they don't make as much money on interest because bonds are because they own a bunch of bonds and those rates are going down, they got to increase prices, and so that disproportionately affects lower income people, right? And I can I can go through all of them, but the point is that inflationary strategy that the government has done and that they that they do robs people of their money, right? Because had the cost of living not been so much, then the people at the bottom or even it's not even the bottom, it's the bottom sixty percent, which is not the bottom, right? It's like, you know, that's the majority of people. It took money that they should have had and and they transferred that wealth basically to people who owned <laughs> Who own assets, right? In an inflationary, you know, way, and so it's the way that the government steals from the people over and over and over again. I don't like it, and the reason why I'm taking so much time to educate on it, and I've done it throughout the year, is because once you understand it, here I'm gonna sit on it for one more thing. Before the slave trade, or around the time of the slave trade, like one of the ways the Europeans got the leg up on the Africans was Africans. They they used to, you know, they're one of their forms of money in some of the places were these like rare beads, right? Because they didn't have the technology to create the beads, so they were rare beads. And I don't want to get into details of how they got the beads, but they were just these rare rare beads, right? And so the Europeans figured out, oh, this is what they use for money, so let's use our technology over here to create more of these beads, and we're going to flood the market with the beads because they'll trade us, you know, their goods and services for the beads, and then then we'll loan them money for it, and when they then when they don't have the money to pay it back, we can take their family members into the slave trade, right? It was intentional, right? But they flooded the money, inflationary. They they brought inflation into the economy because they made their money worth less, because the, at the time they didn't understand it, and then put them into slavery, right? And so this has been an intentional trick of people in power for hundreds of years, right? Because it's a difficult concept to understand. So you, so. You got to understand it. Now, people say, all right, Philip, well, we can't really like stop them from doing that, right? Because that's really hard. What can we do? Well, here's the beauty of it. If we know the playbook and what they're going to do, 
you got to think, okay, what asset classes do really well in, in money printing, right? The, the reason why you've seen in the 70s, whenever they had that inflationary period of time, so again, last time we were in this position where there was a lot of global debt and they went to the printing press was the 70s. What asset class did, the, did well in the 70s, had the best relative return? Gold, right? Gold was amazing in the 70s. And then when you go to all those periods, here's a cool part about that book that I read. It showed you all those periods of time, the different asset classes and how gold did relative to the currency and other assets and gold out, gold shined in every single scenario, right? Because it's great store of value. It's scarce. They can't print any more gold. At most, gold miners can produce 2% a year, you know, of, of production. So they're not going to really affect the supply much because it's so hard to mine gold. And so, yeah, so gold, gold was a storeholder wealth. You fast forward to today, when the government started, because the government's basically been propping up the market since 08, right? They've been strengthening the Fed's balance sheet. There's a, if you really want to nerd out, there's like a chart that shows the stock market growth, and then it shows the line of the Fed's balance sheet growing because they're buying bonds, which is, that's nerd stuff, but they're inflating the market, and the trend line is like the same, right? As they've been basically creating money, the rate they've created money has outpaced even the rate of stock growth, right? Actually, stock growth has been about the same. Stocks have kept pace with with their inflationary about the you know about the same. The the only asset class over the last ten years that has outpaced their fake money creation was Bitcoin. You know, but gold held its own too a little bit. And, and so I'm 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 meandering. But here's the point: Bitcoin wasn't created in the '70s. Bitcoin got created in 2009, right? And Bitcoin solved for the problem of all right, how do you create scarcity in digital money? Because money's already digital. But digital, we can copy digital easy. So so you can't create scarcity because before it was easy. If I had a copy of a song, I can I can just create it on a disc. So the problem that was solved was, hey, here's how to create scarcity in digital format, right? And and if you want to know the details, go read the Bitcoin standard. It goes into how they did it. It's a really good book. But the point is, Bitcoin now made it where you can have basically digital gold, right? And it took a while for it to take off, but Bitcoin allows you to now say, okay, we got scarcity and I can't transfer, it's hard to transfer bars of gold from country to country, you know, or state to state, but Bitcoin is easy. Like you can keep it on your drive, uh, you know, keep it on your phone if you want to, or keep the 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 the, the passwords, the pass keys in your head and get to the internet wherever you're going and you can access your money. So it's, Another good book that you may want to read called The Ascent of Money, right? The Ascent of Money goes through just money. It starts with money, which is currencies, to bonds, to insurance, right, to real estate, to stocks, right? And so this new crypto space is a new a new level of finance that is being, that's helping to solve a problem that we have, which is how do we protect our money against these the, the governments, right? So gold is still a way to do it. But now Bitcoin is another way that allows regular folks to protect their savings against the government, right? And I'm explaining that because now you're going to understand the context of why the governments are so afraid of Facebook and Bitcoin, right? And they're afraid of it because they're like, man, this is how we've controlled people and raped the system for years. And now this is a decentralized money. Like we can't control it. We can't print more Bitcoin. You have to get 51% of the people to agree to do it. The hands are in the power of the people. And so this is scaring the 
stuff out of people, you know, people in power, the elites, right? So, and at this point, in my opinion, the network effect, like it's way too big for them to do anything with. And that's, which is why you see people getting on board. They're like, we're not going to get rid of it. So we got to figure out a way to live with it and regulate it. And and so another point, another reason why I think it's important and why I'm spending more time educating on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, every 50 to 100 years, the financial system like breaks because of this whole debt cycle, right? The, the cool thing about human beings is when we're under pressure, we tend to thrive. Like we keep surviving. We figure out solutions to the problems, right? And so, you know, after the 70s, and I'm not saying this is not a good or a bad thing, but you, you, it ended up being a bad thing. But in the 70s, when you had the advent of derivatives products, futures products, which are like products that allowed companies to manage risk um, better, which I won't get into that. But it also allowed people who understood those those financial assets to make a lot of money. So the, the billionaires in money management who are not Warren Buffett, like the Stanley Drucker Miller, George Soros, Paul Two Jones, people who made a lot more money than Buffett. You know, like they make Buffett's return look average. You know, a lot of these people, you know, made they were like the the what I call thirty five year olds. Let me explain what that means, right? It was Andrew Carnegie has a great quote. I didn't understand it at first, but he it's when he was like in his sixties, he says I only go to business, I only go in business with thirty-five year olds, and I was like, "Why is he so ageist?" You know. But then, I, but then I got into my mid thirties, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Because in your mid thirties, you you have the experience in the industry to understand it and to be dangerous, but you're not married to the preconceived bias. And as a matter of fact, you're open to a leg up against the establishment because they're trying to hold you down, right? Those ones that are sixty. They want to hold you down, and you're like the young lion. You're like, man, I'm coming for your pride, you know what I mean? Uh, and I'm going to get it because someday you're not going to be able to take me, right? And so those billionaires I mentioned were the 35-year-old young lions that said, man, the system is jacked up. Here's some new, here's some new things that are going to help the system. Let me understand it, and let me learn how to make money off of it because it's a very inefficient you know, market. And that's, that's where crypto is right now. It's a lot. The establishment doesn't like it they can't do anything about it but they're building regulations over it and you have a big chunk of people who just don't understand it which creates opportunity right it's kind of like instagram eight years ago nobody knew who instagram was but the people who are big on instagram and twitter were ones that were just early right you know you think man it's hard to get a hundred thousand followers when it's mature but if you were early you got the network effect of you just being early, right? And and that's 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 how network effects work. And and I can you can look at all the platforms, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, like you be early. Even in real estate, you're if you early in a spot where everybody comes, you you're you appreciate and in, in, in value or your your assets appreciate in value. If you're early on a new stock that nobody understands and knows and it grows to big, right? If you owned Amazon when it was worth whatever, two hundred million, right? As people understood the value of Amazon more, you participated in that upside. And so this is why uh, it's important to pay attention now because, in my opinion, these, these this asset class is here to stay. They're already putting regulation on it. They've already the, – the other part about it is people be like, yeah, but the government is powerful. I'm like, but listen, unless unless the governments around the world coordinate together and stop it like we have world peace, that'll stop it. But if it's it's like it's like when you're in a, uh, those cartels, the reason why cartels don't work because if one person cheats, 
you know what I'm saying? Then it's going to break up the cartel. So it's kind of like if if one country says, I think I'm going to use Bitcoin as a sort of, and let me, I got to explain one more part because I can't just say this and not explain it. So the reason why America has so much power now over China and Venezuela and Iran, it's not, it's, it's, the nukes are cool, but everybody has nukes, right? It's global trade is done through dollars. So if you want to do business with a different country, like the reserve asset is the U.S. dollar. And so, and the U.S. controls the swift payment system, which is like, think of it like, you know, the pipes of money. Like if you want to wire money or transfer money internationally, like swift payment system, U.S. owns that. So if they want to, you know, when you hear them doing sanctions, they, they'll, they'll say, hey, Venezuela, you can't transfer money on SWIFT anymore. And now, you know what I'm saying, credit frees up for them. You know, they got to figure out different ways to get money to do business. And the U.S. owns that for for the whole system. And so, and since everybody does, you know, they, they early on created the network effect because they were smart. They they had oil priced in dollars, right? right? This is like detailed nerd stuff because oil was controlled by Britain before, then they went broke, and so they did a deal, and I was like, "Hey, listen, we want to, you know, we'll, we'll we'll protect your interests here in the Middle East. We'll put our our military there because you don't have money to do it. But in exchange, you know, what I'm saying we we want to have, and I'm simplifying it, but we want oil priced in dollars because what does every country need? What's the biggest asset everybody needs? Oil. So if oil is priced in dollars, when you're buying oil, you got to transact in dollars. It, it and it's like it's like it's like Facebook. Everybody hates Facebook." But the network effect, how are you going to stay in contact with your kids or your high school people without Facebook? You can hate it, but you don't have a choice because of the network effect. And so that is the U.S. dollar, right? And so understanding that backdrop, let me go back to what I was, I forgot what I was going to say. Again, we're talking about lack of nukes, how they have control, central banks. I'll come back to it, but it's also the reason why the government secured a Facebook, right? Whenever Facebook announced Libra, right, they were like, what the heck? Like, Facebook is smart. They were like, listen, we got two billion people on our platform. If we can create our own currency, we basically do to the world what the dollar, what the U.S. did to the world, right? We, we said, hey, here's the, here's the money. You, spend, you transact on our platform. And even though they weren't going to control it, they were part of a board, it was basically the, the board saying, we're going to create a new world order, you know, like all of us people are going to agree to this. It builds a huge network effect for everybody involved, which was PayPal and all these folks, right? And then they, like, just jumped over the system and, like, was going to be in domination, right? So, and and, it, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the week that Facebook said, we are going to, they changed the name to DM, we're going to start launching DM the way the government told us to do in January, just backed by the U.S. dollar, that then they want to sue Facebook for monopoly, which was which is stupid because they don't have a monopoly. There's there's Google, there's Snapchat, which you know there's TikTok that rose, you know beyond Facebook. Like they don't have a mon. I mean, it, it is nobody, and they're not forcing anybody to use them. Do they have network effect? Yeah, but you got other different platforms that people are using that are thriving. I mean, Twitter's, it you know had a comeback, and so in my opinion, right. It was just the fact that, wait a minute, we cannot let them come out with this th- thing before we finish our Fed-backed stable coin, and we can't let them get this power because there is power in money, right? I mean, if you if you control the money, you have power, and that's why I think it's really important for, and why I'm educating people on, like, understand this because it impacts your business, it impacts your investments, right? If you want to know what the underlying most important thing to understand, the pipelines of investing 
is understand the money because the money affects your net rate of returns, right? It, it does. If, and I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but, but it does because of inflation and a monetary policy affects your net returns, like what you can actually buy with the money that you make. That is the, the, the why behind my opportunities is this new system is being built. The governments are back broke. We know they're going to print money. We know historically gold and precious metals have been a good store of value over time when that happens. We've seen over the last decade Bitcoin do well, right? And, and, and I've, you know, there's an argument why it's going to continue to do well and why it's going to be hard for them to stop it. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity. And, and, not, and I think I want to see more people in that industry, right? If, if you feel like you're in an industry where you're being held down, this is the wild, wild west. Right there's lots of opportunity to make money in this industry because it's there's lots of applications to it. It's going to take a whole other episode, but it is, in my opinion, going to do to money what social media did to media. Right? Because you know, 30 years ago, the messaging was controlled by three broadcast stations. Right? Now, you've had like a Democratic president and a Republican president who jumped the establishment. And took over the party and ran the country. Obama did it to Hillary, you know, and Democrats, and Trump did it to Republicans. <laughs> you, you know, Obama did it on blogs, and Trump did it on Twitter, right? And you see again the the rise of Black Lives Matter and other movements that that can come top down. This stuff wouldn't have got reported before if they wanted to shut it down. You got a choice: we can share it on social media, right, and get around it. So same thing's going to happen with money. Right, and it's going to be huge and disruptive, and in disruption comes lots of opportunity to make money. So please pay attention. Here's my final thoughts, and I'm keeping I'm keeping on the theme of my final thoughts, just so you can understand. So, so I, you know, you know, in previous episode, you probably know I own some some Bitcoin through a Bitcoin trust, but I also was like, hey, you know what? Let me just go through the process of like buying some real some real Bitcoin. Right? I just want to see how that process works because it's you know, it's kind of weird. So you know, I, I put some money in there and I bought it on Cash App, and and so with with Bitcoin you have like this wallet, like electronic wallet that you can hold your money in. So you bought on exchange, which I bought it on Cash App, on their exchange, and then I transferred it to my wallet, you know, which was which was not on Cash App. It was a different app, different software. And so if you've ever transferred money on Cash App, you know it takes like two days to get to your bank, right? Even if you see it, you push it. It gets there in two days because of the inner workings of the pipes of the banks, right? It's just it's just slow to verify if the money is actually over there and all that kind of stuff. When I transferred my Bitcoin, it was there in 10 minutes, right? And you can buy and sell Bitcoin on Saturday, on Sunday, at 1 o'clock in the morning, at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was like, does it, and you can tr- transfer it to a wallet like from Grand Prairie to Grand Prairie or from Grand Prairie to Beijing, right? Same time period. Right. And I was like, sweet Jesus. Right. Because, again, if you're a nerd like me and you've studied like the evolution of money. Right. Because at first. Right. We would you know, you would exchange money town to town. Right. And then when 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 railroads came and you could like or those or those wagons, the Wells Fargo wagon. Right. They could transfer money with those wagons, which made it faster. Right. Than like walking. (laughs) You know, walking to transfer money, that was revolutionary, right? Then you had the 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 what was it, telegraph that was invented, where you would say, "I'm gonna do a transaction," and you would like Morse code the money. Western Union was the yeah, they were the big one to do that. 
and that was revolutionary, moving money faster. And then you had this, the SWIFT payment system that we talked about, which made it faster, which was the electronic system. So now you have this system, which is like faster, right? Super fast. And so, again, if, if, if you were fast, you know, Western Union moved fast and built a big business on top of it. You know, PayPal built the big business on top of moving it via the internet, right? And this new system, cryptography, is an even faster way to move money, right? That's why I'm like, you know, every time those new systems came, governments can't stop disruption, right? This one comes where the technology is better and it pulls power from the government's printing press and puts it in the hand of the people, which kind of combines it, kind of like a PayPal with the social media combined, right? Power to the people, and also faster payments. It's just huge, right? So just make sure you guys check it out and understand it for yourself. I'm not telling you to invest in it. I'm just saying pay attention. If you if there there are once in a generational money making opportunities that come, right? And you are early to it. And when when tech, you know, when technology came out in the nineties, man, I was watching Power Rangers. I didn't understand. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. I missed it. I'm not going to miss this. Do what you want with the information. You won't be able to say I didn't, I didn't tell you, right? Y'all enjoy your weekend. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.